So <laughs> that'll be like the running gag of the whole thing. We'll always be working on our introduction and we'll always be interrupted by the guest. <laughs> sure. Oh, is that what you want to do? You want to try working on the introduction now? Or yeah, or just maybe like, what are we doing here? <laughs> Why are we doing this? Are we? Yeah. yeah, the intro maybe just for this episode, and then we can decide what our intro for the actual series is. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Um. I don't know. Um, I'm trying to keep busy in my house, which has no air conditioning, and I'm sweating my ass off. Um. <laughs> With your tap board. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Maybe that could be an episode. Me just tapping. Um, <laughs> All right. What was the trauma that brought us together, Suzanne? Being in the wall. Being in the wall. Yeah. Community theater production. Mm -hmm. Good old Palace Theater, Manchester, New Hampshire. Shout out. <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I think, you know, in some ways, right? Because that story is about a man, an, art, an artist, who works through his trauma in very destructive ways while, you know, becoming successful as an artist. Um, so it's sort of funny that that's the first show that we worked on together. And the character's like a veteran too, right? Or just lived during a time of war? Yeah, that's a great question. I can't remember the, the exact answer to that. Um, I have been a veteran, yes. So, so yeah, and I was studying psychology in college, and you were working in the real world, and like. But I had just come back from acting school um, in San Francisco. I just spent the summer at ACT, and that had changed my worldview in a little bit of ways. Like, I suddenly thought, well, maybe theater could be more than just a hobby. Wow. Yeah, that was a transformative summer. I never like connected those dots that that was like right before we met. Yeah. And I was finishing up college and about to enter grad school and about to enter a whole new chapter of life. But at that point, I think I was starting my sophomore year and was just deciding a different path for myself. I'd gone into college with a nursing major and an intention to enter nursing and had gone into college with a boyfriend and an intention to marry that boyfriend. And then sophomore year, all of that was different. And yep. I did a little bit of theater on the college campus, but it wasn't, um, I wasn't like on the stage and I wasn't really prepared. <laughs> I had done like middle school musicals. But for whatever reason, I uh, saw the call for auditions for The Wall and said, all right, everything's different this year. Let me give this a shot and just happened to get cast. And you were cast for the part that I thought they were casting me for. So I was really just learning how to deal with yeah. disappointment. And yeah, that's the last time that ever happened. <laughs> and I got something that you wanted, trust me. <laughs> Hi there. Hi. I'm just moving to a different part of my house so that you can hear someone above me. Yeah. Any minute, I'm sure a cat will meow, but there's <laughs> no control over that. Right. Hey, guys, can you hear me? 
Yes, very well. Hi. This is so great. I was doing research on this app because they let you host for free, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, I love it. It's such a miracle. Here we go, technology. <laughs> um, welcome. So I'm Suzanne. This is my voice. Welcome. Hi. I'm Loretta, and this is my voice. So I'm so excited to have you on our conversation today. Thank you for being interested. I'm, I'm very, very um, appreciative. So uh, today, Loretta and I are talking to Whitney White, who is a director, writer, and musician, originally from Chicago, currently based in New York. She is a believer of alternative forms of performance, multidisciplinary work, and collaborative processes. Her directing projects include the New York Times Critics Pick and twice extended Our Dear Dead Drug Lord by Alexis Shear, and New York Times Critics Pick What to Send Up When It Goes Down by Alicia Harris, celebrating Black lives who have been lost to radicalized violence. She is a recipient of the Susan Strunk Directing Award and is currently a part of the Rolex Protege and Mentorship Arts Initiative. So welcome, Whitney. Thank you so much. That's such a kind intro. Thank you. We um, were interested today to talk about all of your work, but, um, but particularly uh, your work of Macbeth and Stride, part of your um, Shakespeare grouping of plays. Uh, would you talk a little bit about the genesis of uh, specifically Macbeth and Stride? Yeah, I would love to. It's been honestly such a fulfilling uh, life project, artist, artistic project. Um, so interestingly enough, my, the prompt I received to begin working on the piece uh, was something uh, that happened uh, that I received my third year of graduate school in the Brown University and Trinity Rep MFA acting program which is a three-year program. It's, it's really wonderful. It was life-changing for me. Um, and in our third final year, we we're tasked as, with a sort of uh, a prompt to do 30 to 45 minutes of a performance of anything. And it's kind of a solo performance that's meant to be a thesis project. <laughs> and it's something that is a big deal. And when your first year, you see the third years do it. It's something that really unites the whole uh, Brown Trinity Rep community. And when it got to my third year, I was like, well, what the heck am I going to do? Um, because to hold space on stage by yourself is a really um, vulnerable, challenging task. And I salute all of those who do their own solo work in the field. But, you know, I basically made these three circles. And I had a playwriting class with Deb Salem Smith. She's a wonderful writer and educator. And she's like, just write down everything you're interested in. And so I made these three circles, these kind of concentric circles, like a Venn diagram with everything that got my blood flowing. And in the first circle, I just put rock and roll. <laughs> I'm a big fan of kind of vintage American and British rock and roll and soul. Um, and that kind of older school style of performance where it's like a personality with a voice really singing, you know, Mick Jagger, Tina Turner, those icons, the doors. Um, so I, I put rock and roll and all the people I loved in there. But Tina Turner was at the center of that. She's such a, a image of power for me. And then in my second circle, I wrote Shakespeare. Um, because I felt I hadn't really ever been given the opportunity to do the Shakespeare roles I wanted to do, um, the Shakespeare roles I identified with. And at the center of that was Lady Mac 
Beth because I feel like she's a very understandable character. And and then in the third circle, I think I wrote Nine Inch Nails, which is a band that I love, um, helmed by Trent Reznor. Uh, and his work also has like very much fueled my journey. And out of that weird blending up of a process came this look at Lady Macbeth fueled by music. And I was like, well, how am I going to do this? And so what ended up the first iteration of it was about 40 minutes long. And it felt very much like a cabaret. It was like me on a microphone and I had two colleagues uh, playing instruments, you know, along with me. And it was like me kind of fueling through all of Lady Macbeth's text, Shakespeare's text that he gives her. And it was stitched together with music. And I will never forget the feeling of that first performance. It was wild. And like everyone in the audience all of a sudden understood every word. The music made it so understandable. And all of a sudden I felt like I was inside this woman's emotional journey. And I didn't realize what I had at the time, but someone had seen it. And I was asked to do the piece again at a gala. And for that one, I, I expanded a little bit more, added some more music. And then I was asked to do it again by the very incredible female phenom, Vivian Banesh, who's now the artistic director of Playmakers Rep. Um, and she used to run Chautauqua Theater Company. And she invited me to do it again at Chautauqua. And while I was at Chautauqua, I had about a week to work on it. And my colleague came with me, Zdenko Martin, and... All of a sudden, I realized there's so much more here. And that's when the piece really started to get its legs, because I realized this is about power, and this is about femininity, and this is about female ambition, and this is about what happens when you aim too high, when you try and break that glass ceiling. Um, and so it became a much more kind of dark, kind of energized piece of theater. And then we just kept working on it bit by bit, expanding it, and now... It has a full band and I've gotten to the root of it or I'm on route to getting to the root of it with my directing team, Tibby McGarn, Tyler Dabrowski. But it's like I'm realizing that what I'm interested in is not just female ambition, but black female ambition, because I am a black woman. And I think by specifying who I am, it actually allows more women into it. You know, it's like if you have a specific story, more people will always be attracted to it. So it's like it's expanded to be this series that's looking at these narratives and Shakespeare's tragedies in which if a woman wants too much, she very often doesn't survive towards the end of the play. You know, Cleopatra, Juliet, Ophelia, it's like whether you want power or whether you want love, if you go for it and really go for it, it's really hard to make it to act five. <laughs> and I'm like, what is that about? And how does that relate to what we saw happen with Hillary Clinton? What, how does that relate to the idea of the glass ceiling that now more women are, are understanding to be a real thing? And how does that relate to sexism? And how do those kind of quintessential Western narratives of what's possible for women actually affect our lives on the ground now. Like I would argue it's like we're, we've been told those stories over and over again, and it might be doing something to us. And I don't have an answer, you know, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, they die at the end of the story. So it's like, how can we change that narrative or at least how can we look at it? So that's kind of, it's funny. It came from a like, thesis project in 2015 isn't that crazy yeah yeah and I actually feel like a lot of our theatrical work since the 2016 election um 
those of us that are creating it or even, you know, looking at others, you know, tried and true classics, there's a whole new lens now that we're, that we're seeing the work through. Yeah, totally. Whitney. Uh-oh, can you hear me? I lost. Oh, there we go. And I am not. Hi, yeah. So um, I'm not as familiar with your work as Suzanne has been, but hearing you describe the journey um, for Macbeth and Stride, I'm really struck by what it took for someone to so many areas to bring that production light, right? So you talk, um, well, Suzanne mentioned in the introduction about your collaborative or disciplinary approach to things. How did you develop those areas to pursue a project like this? And how does that, um, you know, how do you carry that as you do this work? Gosh, that's a really amazing question because I think, you know, if I'm really honest with you, I don't know if I've developed a kind of total confidence that gives me the ability to do it. I think it's like every time I perform it, I engage with something that makes me feel alive and speaks to people that I love. And so that gives me the will to do it, you know? And it's funny because it did take a while to be able to step out there and be like, you know what? Yes, I direct but I also love music and I have this incredible group of colleagues that are making this happen with me. Um, so it's kind of twofold. It's like, at first, you know, when you graduate from a graduate program, you're like, what do I do with my life now? And I had all these talented colleagues around me who liked working on my writing and music and stories. And, um, Every time I made something, it was like all of a sudden my closest friends had a job and so did I. So it was like at the same time, I had these stories to get out there as a black woman um, who's questioning things, who's looking at the world around her and, and, and wondering why it is the way it is. So it's like a political impulse an artistic impulse, but also just like a community impulse. Cause every time I did that show, it was like, at first it was my two friends had a job, then my four friends, then my band and my director colleagues, you know? So it, it, it became a way for us all to be together and do the thing that we love. And that kind of gave me a sort of confidence. Like, you know, I think if one of my closest collaborators were like, Oh no, this isn't going to work. Then I would, be like, oh, let me reevaluate it. But every time I was like, can we try this? It was like um, our circle got bigger and bigger and bigger, which I'm incredibly grateful for. But I can't, you know, lie. It's like it takes a village. That's why I say that thing about collaborative art forms. I had a female directing colleague um, named Caitlin who worked with me for a while. And now I've got Tabian Tyler. And um, also, you know, my professors at Brown were incredibly supportive. You know, they saw that I was trying to make a new way to look at Shakespeare. And Shakespeare gets touchy with people. It's really interesting who polices who can do Shakespeare and what it's supposed to look like, you know? And it's really interesting as a person of color kind of bumping up against that and being like, actually, uh, I, I have as much right to this story as you do, unless you were actually there in 16 or whatever. Oh, are you best friends with Shakespeare? Like, why can't I interpret it? You know? Um, 
So I think the confidence thing comes from the community that's committed to working on the work and the professors who've supported me and my mom. I mean, my mother, that was one of the only pieces of mine that she was able to see um, in person. And she's like, there's something really powerful here. And my mother is always my litmus test for theater. I like to think like if I'm working on a play, like would my mom want to sit through this as a kind of citizen and American and regular person in a wonderful way? Like, would she want to sit through this or would she rather be doing something else? And she confided in me and was like, there's really something here. And that gave me a kind of really fiery connection to the work. So, so at this point, how I, um, how I learned about this work was um, a Zoom call uh, presentation that um, American Repertory Theater put together that you were on about Shakespeare, which is where I learned about it. And, um, and of course, the postponement of the show at ART um, due to you know, our social distancing guidelines. Could you talk a little bit about that? What happened with you know, getting ready to you know, present this to the Cambridge audience and then having sort of you know, the rug sort of pulled out from under you, you know, in the middle of this. Well, talk about confidence. You know, I think, yeah, I have been working on that piece for five years now. That's the funny thing about theater also. It, it takes so much time, <laughs> you know. Um, and I had been working on that piece for five years and we finally got a production, which is, you know, it's something you work towards. It's like a huge thing. And we had actually had to make matters more complicated. We had in February, right before the shutdown, we had a workshop in Boston at ART on the stage, you know, with the sound and like starting to play with the lights. And so we had just had a taste of how thrilling it was going to be. And then this lockdown happened. And I, there was a moment that was, um, I think full of doubt and disappointment and pain and all the things that so many working artists are going through right now, not being able to gather because theater is about gathering quintessentially. So if we can't do that in the flesh, then how do we make it, you know? And there, yes, there are some plays that can be turned into movies. There can be turned into digital projects, but some can't. Some are meant to be experienced live and in the flesh, and that's what gives them power. Um, and, you know, Macbeth and Stride is one of those. And it, there was a moment that was just very, very hard, I think, for myself and for the team. But what mitigated that was how incredible ART was. I mean, I think they were exemplary in terms of committing to us as a team, supporting me and my artists, fulfilling contracts, asking us what we need and committing to doing the play at a different time, you know? And that's all you can really hope for right now because none of us know what's going to happen. Um, and especially in the theater where like, again, gathering is quintessential. Like we don't know how we're going to learn how to do that um, in the midst of what's going on right now. Um, so I think, I think it was ART and Mark Lunsford really that just, I feel like they put a mat of love down. So when I was crashing, I landed safely into that, you know? Yeah. They were great. 
Well, that is really powerful to hear um, both that the confidence that you developed in the project and in yourself came from community. And then also that when you needed yeah. community most, Sweet. you received it. Um, that's really nice. <laughs> we're to, we know that not every conversation we're going to be having over the next few weeks. Will be yeah. Like and this, I think so it's also, great to sorry to, to interrupt, that. but it's also um, like, I, you know, because ART is attached to Harvard, I think some of the theaters attached to these educational centers, they have to be exemplary with how they're doing this, right? They can't cut any corners. Um, and it, it, it's just been really comforting in the hard times to know that we have their support. Before we got on together, Suzanne had mentioned um, projects yeah. that you have going on currently. And so I'm curious, sort of in this pandemic moment, what pivot have you made um, or have you and how that Thank is you for asking um, that. working I mean, for you so far? There's so much to learn from from this period. It's like my work pattern has shifted, um, which I'm grateful for. Um, and I think the first thing I did, the literal first thing I did was reach out to the young artists I know who are emerging and graduating from programs, because just imagine like what we're going through, just imagine graduating and being excited to go out into the world, go out into your field and everything is subverted. So the first thing I did was reach out to uh, people I know who run education departments, like the incredible Jane Cox at Princeton and my colleague Mauricio at NYU. And I was like, hey, do you need a guest lecturer online? And my colleague Dan Sewell, who um, does scenic design in, at NYU in the undergrad program. And I was like, do you need a guest lecturer? Do your students need um, some inspiration, can I talk to them? And also Amy Herzog at Yale. I reached out to all those people and I was like, hey, I'm here. And they got back to me so fast. And within days I was like getting connected with young people who were showing me their portfolios, talking with me, me giving them professional advice and, and like talking to young people just grounded me immediately because then I, it became about something bigger than just me. And I guess to other artists listening to this, like when you're in those low times, feeling uncertain and out of control, it's a great time to connect with young artists because you have answers that they need. You know what I mean? And it will ground you a little bit. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing is um, I started working on a project with the New York Times that I'm incredibly honored and excited to be a part of. Um, and I feel like it intersects with Macbeth and Stride so much because it's dealing with women's rights and uh, it's an event celebrating uh, the women's suffrage movement. Uh, and it's going to be a digital event in August that uh, will culminate with a kind of performance of a play online that is inspired by Veronica Chambers and the New York Times staff upcoming book, um, Finish the Fight. And just working on this has been so incredible you guys because it's like a book chronicling um over like like a, a 11 women who were quintessential to the women's suffrage movement and suffragist rights um women of color who contributed to this movement that are often overlooked and it's been so thrilling to read their stories um honestly and so that event 
has really anchored me as well. Um, just learning about other women in the past who have the same thoughts, needs, and desires as me and who are brave enough to stand up and fight for it. Um, that's been really, really, really grounding. Well, that actually, that sounds really exciting. As, as someone who is an educator, I, I agree, you know, um, helping the, the, the next generation of artists and then also you know, everyone's all excited about the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment and all of that, but it is so often framed by white women and um, and we need to hear other voices. So that's a really, that's a very exciting project. It's It's great. And uh, the book is just, I'm, I'm excited for it to be out there. It's, it's exactly what I needed. And um Again, my mom was the litmus test for that. Like I told her about it and she was so moved by it and just told me how important she thinks it is. And I was like, I'm on the right path here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's like talking with young people and then also finding ways to do work online digitally. It's going to frustrate you at times, but there's been some great revelations like that Zoom you met me on sort of. You know, there were hundreds of people on that Zoom. And we were all together for a moment. So it's like, as frustrating as it is to not be able to make theater, I'm also inspired by the fact that, look, anyone can click a, a link. I can send this podcast to everyone I know and they won't be financially hindered from listening to our conversation. And the reality is I love theater, but so many of the plays I've worked on across the country, a lot of people I love and respect can't pay for that or or maybe they can pay for it but they don't feel welcome in those spaces like theater still is for better or for worse a kind of um classist based art form and like i get to send this podcast out and so many more people i love will listen to it immediately so it's like i'm interested in the times we're in because maybe it will teach artists how to make work that has more access for more different types of people you know yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Accessibility and what that means and how we actually live that. And and then too, you know, that, that balance as well of, well, artists need True. to eat, artists have light bills, you know, um, trying to find that balance because that's the exciting moment is, you know, the power that individual creators have in um, putting out some of their creative output and monetizing that and, and all the pressures that come um, once your content yeah, is Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to look, wake up and look in the mirror and, and understand that to society, you're not an essential worker, right? It's, it's, I mean, that's the challenging thing about the society we're in is like work has value and different types of work have different types of value, right? So what's it like to devote yourself to an art practice that all of a sudden is non-essential? Well, we are essential. You know, we are essential. Um, we're educators and we're cultural makers and we contribute to society. And so it, it is, it's like for every good moment, there's a challenging moment and there's no amount of digital work that will change that, you know? So, and, and I just think that, you know, you, the work that you're doing is really um, very much in line with that theme, right? And just giving voice to the powerful intellectual tradition um, that Black women have in our world, and then particularly within American Thank society. you for your so time, the both of you, and thank you today. for, you know, being interested in what we're going through. It's funny, I feel like educators, I have so much love and respect for you guys, because 
my whole journey truly started through the field of education. I, I can't say that enough. Um, there's many ways to come to the professional field of art, but it was my professors, male and female, who lifted me up and kept pushing me to get that confidence that you asked me about to, to step out and make stories. And it's like arts programs are so important. They impact so many people's lives. So you guys are heroes and thank you for your time. <laughs> Well, that's it. The entire purpose of the podcast has been served. We, we know for guests, we are done. We have been in our life choices. And that was really the whole point. So thank you. Thank you so much, Whitney. It was so lovely to have spend this Bye, time. Bye, ladies. Be well. I hope you have good cooking recipes. <laughs> Reach out anytime, Oh, my God. Please. So many. Don't be strangers. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks so much, Whitney. And so much of, of theater, I mean, you know, theater can be fun. It can be fun. And there's no, there's no, you know, shame or devaluing of that. Of, um, But it's never really been that for me. I've always, not always, I mean, I wasn't 10 going like, Oliver's really about, you know, the plight of the orphan and, and, and food insecurity. I thought you were that 10 year old, Suzanne. <laughs> I'm going to go check with your mom. <laughs> Yeah, um, she's probably on my porch right now. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> All she ate was salty. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for me, theater is about this opportunity to, you know, reflect on what's happening in society and 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 often traumatic experiences. So it it all goes together for me. And, you know, we've had this conversation about doing lots of things together. I mean, if we were living in New York at the same time as YouTube was coming into its entity as a content platform, yeah. um, we would have made a lot more mistakes, I think, in a public way. Um, so it's probably <laughs> good that we weren't, <laughs> the timing was off for that. But we had all sorts of creative ideas about shows and plays and you know, little um, shorts and somehow, and then we've had, you know, scholarly collaborations, um, but somehow this is the first thing that we're coming together to to put and out there in the world together. So what, why now? And what's that like? <laughs> why now? Because I'm home. The pandemic. That's honestly, I mean, honestly, right. We talked about this podcast for a year. Yeah. And I kept pushing you off because of the stress of my job and theater. Like, you know, like, yeah, you're teaching and then you're in rehearsal. And then like, it just was so overwhelming that I couldn't even imagine taking on something outside of my core duties. Yeah. And 
and I was, and then all that went away. Yep. Yep. It did. (laughs) (laughs) Hi there. Hi. We are going to have um, a conversation about touring or whatever. And um, so when I picked you two, I forgot that we all know each other. So I'm going to talk about that But uh, (laughs) before we get started. Um, But yeah, so just, you know, like it should just have fun. Totally fine. Um, And And I am a licensed psychologist, so I will get to your deepest, darkest secret. So just be prepared to bear your soul and oh, no. embarrass everyone who's ever loved you. Perfect. Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> it's the stage. Hi, Michael. Hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? Good. How's my audio sounding? Great. That's great. Good. Yep. Coming through clearly. Yeah. Everybody sounds good. Um, okay. So what I will do is I'm going to use your small bios to introduce you and then we'll get started. Perfect. Okay, great. Okay, so uh, today we are going to talk to uh, two artists who were on tour when the pandemic hit the United States and they suddenly found themselves no longer on tour. Uh, We have Rachel Winfield, who is uh, an equity stage manager, and she was on the first national tour of Anastasia, which was her touring debut. She worked in the San Francisco area for years before moving to New York City, and she has an MFA in stage management from the University of Iowa. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, everybody. And then um, Michael Thatcher is a New York-based actor, and he's appeared on Broadway, off-Broadway, regionally, and most recently, he was Robert Grove on the Broadway national tour of the play that goes wrong until it all went wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Michael. Hey, how you doing? So full disclosure, um, in the summer of 2014, I guess. Um, this is the PG version of the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Michael, Rachel, and I all worked in different capacities at uh, the Texas Shakespeare Festival. Um, so, so we all know each other. Um, I haven't um, seen either of them since then, and I appreciate you guys um, coming on board for this. Yeah, it's fun. Thanks for having us. Yeah, as many people know, once you have encountered Suzanne in your professional and personal life, she stays. So (laughs) (laughs) you get the email calling you in for the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Well, until there's a until there's a vaccine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, Suzanne set up the conversation and uh, that's kind of for me where I want to start sort of where were you when you got the call (laughs) that everything was different? And did you see that call coming or was it a complete blindside? So I don't know about you, Michael, but for us, they we had a meeting maybe like two weeks before it all went down where they were like, don't worry, we won't be closing. (laughs) And, um, and then of course, which in retrospect uh, is either comforting or horrifying or equally both. (laughs) I think it was comforting at the time. You know, we thought we, we knew they were trying to take care of us anyway. Right. Right. And, um, and then comes Wednesday, the 11th of March, which is when Broadway shut down. And uh, that's when things got a little nutty and people were kind of freaking out. And, um, we made it through 
uh, Friday. We made it through two shows on Thursday uh, with a meeting in between saying we're good to go for the rest of the city. We'll be flying to Kentucky on Monday still. Um, and then Friday at noon, we got shut down. Mm-hmm. So it was it was pretty bizarre, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, it was a little different for us. We I think we first talked about it. I could be wrong about a week before Broadway shut down on the 11th started talking about like, you know, the precautions to take while traveling, you know, cover your face. If you can, don't touch your face while we're going through the airport, all that kind of stuff. Um, For us, it it was definitely a little bit different. We had a rare one nighter in uh, Maryville, Tennessee on a Tuesday. And then we traveled on the Wednesday to Wilmington, Delaware, and we were set to open Thursday night in Wilmington, Delaware. And at our usual company meeting, that's when they told us we are going to not play here for this weekend. We had five shows, six shows in Wilmington that weekend that they canceled. Um, we kind of sat still for two days for that Friday and Saturday. And then I believe it was Saturday. They said, um, we're going to send you all back to New York from Wilmington, Delaware, uh, next week is canceled. We're not sure about the week after that yet. Two more weeks down the road have already canceled. So we were just kind of waiting. And then the week after that, in when we were back in New York, all at our separate places, um, that's when we got the official closing notice uh, that we would not be returning. Our tour only had 10 weeks left, so it wasn't too surprising no. um, as soon as things started accelerating. But it was still – it was – you know, very sad, especially because our last performance, um, that Tuesday in Maryville, we didn't know that was our last performance or the last time we we would get to do the show. And that was really tough. Yeah. Us too. And just in case anyone on my team is listening, uh, we did have a safety meeting as well. So, um, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) And we actually did just, uh, we get, we got closed yesterday. Officially our tours has been canceled. So we got that news yesterday. I'm so sorry. Yeah, bummer. Um, Michael, I forgot that you were in Wilmington. Um, I know Andy Trescott. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he and yeah. I w- actually went to undergrad together. <laughs> yeah, he. Um, speaking as Loretta said, he. Uh, I had him zoom into one of my classes this semester to talk about um, arts management marketing. So, yeah, the small world. Um, small world. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Rachel, as a stage manager, right, like part of your job is to take care of your company. So. Right. As all of this is going down, you know, how are you feeling and, and, and what are you, what's your job specifically? Well, uh, the first thing I did differently was I became um, the wet wipe girl and I wiped down more things than I think I ever have in my life. <laughs> um, and it was pretty hard people, you know, to, in terms of keeping people focused, it was hard to keep them sort of not thinking about that. Um, especially after Broadway shut down because we had like three more shows after they shut down. Um, and that was all they could really think about backstage and people were really upset. It was sort of like, you know, half of the people thought we should cancel and close so that we could all keep each other safe. And the other half really wanted to keep going. And um, and then when we did actually get shut down, people were really scared to travel. I'm not sure if I'm sure you guys were feeling the same way going back to New York, Michael. Um, Mm -hmm. But people were really nervous about not having any cars Mm -hmm. to rent to get home because that the university we were in uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, the university had shut down the week, the beginning of that week, I think. 
so we were all worried there weren't going to be any cars to get home and um yeah it was hard it was hard to keep people sort of positive since we didn't know when we'd see each other again but I guess that's what I was trying to do in that moment and trying to you know keep things positive but also cleaning (laughs) if that answers that question (laughs) yeah that emotional labor that that I think we call it psychological first aid, right? Of just sort of right. keeping everyone focused on the very next thing they have to solve and not being overwhelmed by. Exactly. Yeah. And we um, set up a weekly Zoom meeting for the company um, so they'd have something consistent to look forward to over this period of time. But it was hard in those few days trying to figure out what was going to happen and how to keep people, you know, positive when so much chaos was happening in the world. Right. So if you all were, were, you know, just officially closed, um, you know, in these Zoom meetings and what have you, I mean, A, were you rehearsing at all or was it just about, um, you know, mental health and check-ins? Yeah, it was just like checking in and having a place where people can come see each other. You get used to seeing somebody every day for a year and a half, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to be away from them, really it is. Um, So we had just that space where we could hang out and know that, our friends would be there if we wanted to talk to them. And um, we did practice the opening number one time as mostly as a joke and it did not go well. Um, So we did not do that again. (laughs) Didn't go well tears or it didn't go well. Like just was terrible sound. Oh, it just was terrible sound. Everything was off. (laughs) It's actually on my um, Instagram. If anyone is curious to listen to it, it is horrible. (laughs) We really disgraced our. Like we should have been canceled before the pandemic. (laughs) It was bad. It was bad. Oh, man. Right. But that's the pivot, right? The pivot is like, oh, we're just going to do stuff on Zoom. But the reality is exactly what you're saying is that the sound is terrible on Zoom. Yeah. And with the, and, different internet speeds, you know, everybody's going at yeah. a different speed and a pace. It's all, it was bad. Yeah. <laughs> it was rough. So, Michael, for you, you know, this, you know, happened with 10 weeks left of a run anyway, but, but where did this fit in your professional picture? And has this changed that picture for you? Yeah, I mean, I had been on the road for 19 months at that point. Um, This was my first so I actually started on Broadway with the play that goes wrong uh, for a couple months and then was out on the road ever since 2018. So that was my first Broadway credit. And I was, yeah, really starting to gear up and look forward to getting back into the city and for the first time kind of being a free agent um, and auditioning again with these big credits on my resume and kind of seeing where that would go. So I knew it was going to be a struggle when I first get back just because I'd been gone so long to, um, you know, to get, uh, you know, refamiliarized with different casting directors and and different studios and things. Um, so now that timeline has just been pushed back even further until. Mm-hmm. I mean, that the toughest thing about this is we don't have an end date, so we don't really know when. So that's just that's been a, a difficult thing to come to terms with and just readjust to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Rachel, this was your first, um, you know, sort of big professional Broadway style tour. I mean, for you now, um, you know, how are you feeling about, you know, again, this should have kept going and now it didn't. And now here we are, like, what's, 
what's your thought process on what's next? Yeah, I um, obviously have no idea, but <laughs> I, uh, I feel really lucky that I was able to be on the tour for a year and a half. So I've made a lot of connections and met a lot of amazing people. And our general management team is really great. So, you know, in that sense, I feel like my career can continue on the path that it has been going on. Um, my main concern now, I'm not sure if Michael, you're feeling the same way, but just when theater is going to even be back, you know, when it's going to be back, like it was before, um, that's really my, my concern. And if it's not back till Mm -hmm. January, you know, what am I going to do with these six months? And if I need to, you know, start working towards a backup career just in case and those kind of things, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's scary to think about. I, I have, since this all started so my survival job before the tour or just you know as an actor you kind of need a survival job when you're first starting out um i actually am trained to do tech support on online meetings so as soon as (laughs) um yeah it was never more prescient (laughs) so yeah i've been working full time for the last two months as soon as the tour ended i had both my former bosses i you know i freelance doing this and both my former bosses reached out and said, we are getting inundated with, you know, work. We assume you're available. Can you please come back? <laughs> so, wow. so it's, it's both a blessing and a curse that I do. I at least uh, have some income coming in. I didn't have to file for unemployment. Um, my, you know, backup job is still available. Unlike so many of my friends and, and other people in the theater community. Right. So I really, I really am lucky, but it's yeah, a blessing and a curse because I have gone now from touring the country and performing in front of thousands of people every night to <laughs> sitting in front of a computer <laughs> for eight hours a day doing tech support, you know, so wow. it's just a, it's a harsh, harsh uh, juxtaposition, but, um, but I am, I am lucky to have it and I am grateful. Are you in New York still? Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you have a way to pay the rent. Yes, definitely. I hear that's still being collected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, I guess I'm curious, you know, we don't know what the timeline is and and we don't know what, you know, whatever the various iterations of normal might come after this. Um, but anything that you are hoping for or hoping to remember as as we continue to move forward through this pandemic? Um, I'm hoping that theaters, producers, actors, everybody involved um, doesn't rush the process um, of getting back too quickly. I, uh, I am longing to be on a stage again, but I'm, I'm afraid of rushing it too quickly where audience members um, are going to get sick, where actors are going to get sick, crews going to get sick. And if that starts to happen again, I feel like the timeline for normalcy will just be pushed back that much further. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely believe theater is essential to everyday life. I think it's just, it has to be paused right now, at least live theater, you Mm -hmm. know, on a stage with an audience just has to be on pause for now. And I I hope that people don't rush back too quickly and make things worse. That's my biggest hope. Yeah, what he said. (laughs) (laughs) If it works, it works, right? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and you know, it's it's so hard because exactly, you know, Rachel, you said like the unknown, right? Like, you know, if we could plan for six months, that'd be great. 
Right. But, you know, every day another regional theater anyways comes out and says, oh, yeah, no 2021 season. Like, we're just we're just done. And um, and that's it is for those of us, you know, that are in the arts and and this is how we make our living. And this is, you know, this is our job. Like, you know, um, it's becoming, you know, more and more scary of when do we get to do our job again? Right. Yeah. And so many theaters have had to close and seasons are canceled. And so when things even get back up and running, you know, there's going to be a large pool of people that don't have work, you know, mm-hmm. so that's pretty scary, too. Yeah, no, I, I know teaching teaching undergrads. That's exactly um, <laughs> it's exactly the conversation we're having. Right, um, right. All right. Well, today we are joined in our conversation. Oh, see, they can talk to there. Sorry. Got to pop tabs out. There we go. <clears throat> so today we are joined in our conversation with Ahi Amu, uh, entrepreneur and UX specialist who runs Geek Empowered, a web design strategy company and Code Burnout, um, which I know to be a podcast focused on mental health and the tech industry. So if a creative has a vision and they have a process and they have a way of documenting that, is it, you know, does that instantly turn into opportunities for them or do they need to go into this process with a, with a clear view of what they want to get out of it? So, so as a creative, you just have to think, what message do you want people to walk away with? And the second thing I would say is, um, is the biggest key to all of this when it comes to your content, when it comes to putting yourself out there, is consistency. That is the biggest thing. It, it is the, it, it's the hardest thing to do. Um, because we're creatives, it's very hard to constantly push out that type of energy. And even for myself, like I always have to switch back and forth from being super creative one day to like, super technical let me just like do some tedious work Mm -hmm. the next day so you have to figure out like what schedule works for you for you to consistently push out your work so find whatever that rhythm is and needs to be for you whatever that Mm -hmm. that kind of structure needs to look like but then really commit to doing that and what's yeah. the length of time before you see return? And I don't mean like financial, but just, you know, how do you know if it's working and sticking or does it matter? You just create to, to create and, and stick to that schedule. So I wouldn't say, so for me, I immediately think don't just, don't just throw stuff out there and cross your fingers. Definitely don't do that. Um, I am very big on data. I'm very big on um, thinking about not only what you're posting, what platform are you posting it to, who are your followers, um, looking at um, the number of views on your videos. Because for my videos, um, especially on LinkedIn, like some had like 10,000, some had like 62 views. So it's, it's very hard to um, to kind of track what is being what is getting the most impressions, um, especially if you're just throwing it out there. So you want to make sure it takes a little bit of work 
it's not it's not easy to do. I'm not gonna lie, it's not super easy where you're just like, I'm gonna post Monday at twelve every single day and just see and see uh who's gonna view it. Um you have to do a little bit of testing. You you have to do a little bit of research to figure out um who that audience is that you're trying to reach out to. Are they on Facebook? Are they on Twitter? Are they on LinkedIn? And then um you also have to do research into what they're into. Um, something that I look at with my clients is almost like a persona. You want to think about their behaviors. You want to think about what influences people. Um, because a lot of people have a habit of saying, well, I'm going for everybody. I want everybody to see my stuff. And what happens is if you go for everybody, you end up with nobody. How the recognition that everything is different right? Which is sort of, <laughs> that's sort of the thing about live theater, right? That every time it is different and that there is always change and that's the magic of it. Um, but it's also the terror of it. And I think that's matched in this moment as well. I think there's a recognition that this is a, a moment of cultural transformation and, um, and artists and healers need to be part of that. Um, and not just the coping with this moment part of that, but with the re-envisioning and reimagining what comes next part of it too. So I think that's for me why I'm making time now like, for this as opposed to doing my children's remote learning. Oh my God, please make it stop. Um, it's just that recognition that maybe there's something we can contribute to that bigger need and conversation. So I'm super excited that you've got a little bit of rest and space <laughs> and that this uh, technology is holding up for us so far, even if our guests aren't always joining us when we want them to. Um, so you sent over some titles and uh, tell me about this title. Yeah. So um, when, when I reapproached you, right. About like sort of this doing the podcast and reframing it. Right. So then what does each episode look like? And um, so to, in the beginning, you know, stopping in the middle, like sort of going back six or eight weeks when everything sort of shut down and, and trying to go back to that moment and um, talk to people about what their experience was in that moment. But then since we're about, you know, two months out from that now, how they have... Um, you know, how they've dealt with, you know, having opportunities and careers paused. And um, so, yeah, so this idea of stopping in the middle of, you know, your career trajectory or a project or a tour or all of these things that, you know, we're always working, artists are always sort of have, you know, something in the fire and like now there's no fire. Yeah. <laughs> just a chamber <laughs> where the embers could be maybe someday yeah <laughs> does anyone have bellows yeah. anyone at all 